I come from a country that talks about water a lot and recently the talk has been about the lack thereof. Uh, As each month and as each year goes by, as Australia is longer and longer in a drought, uh, more and more of public discussion is about the lack of water. In fact, every night on the news, straight after the weather report, they have a, a report on the dam levels uh, in Sydney where I was and every, every night it's just a tiny bit lower and uh, it's, it's kind of a, it's a sad thing. You know, every night you watch it and the little bar's gone down a tiny bit more and this happens night after night. It's a, an amazing experience living in a city and in a country that is watching water run out with no idea really what to do about it. Um, and all the politicians and the scientists have got together and they've come up with all sorts of harebrained schemes of uh, how they're going to do it. The latest was get giant tankers all around the world to sort of travel to Australia full of water and uh, drop it off. And I was thinking in uh, recent days they may as well just stop here in Sheffield and just have a line of them on the coast. We've got plenty of water here. And so uh, I suspect when you live in a place uh, like England where water is plentiful, the green and pleasant land that uh, England is, that it's hard to imagine living without it. I mean, we know it's important, we know it's a fundamental basic need, but imagine if the tap was turned off. If next time you went to the kitchen tap and you, you turned it, nothing happened. Or you did the same with the bath. Well, that's, that's pretty much where Australia is. Uh, I lived in a city slowly gripped by the very real possibility that in the near future there wouldn't be enough water to go around. And even in a country where we have plenty of water, it's hard to deny that it is an absolute basic need and that without it we'd be in deep trouble. Now if there was something that was even more fundamental, even more basic, more necessary than something like water, then that would be something pretty important, wouldn't it? That would be something worth knowing about. Well, as we turn to this second encounter with Jesus in the early chapters of John, that is exactly the issue that we confront. Jesus uh, uses this issue of the basic need we have for water to explore the much deeper issue of all human need and our need for satisfaction, the universal search for fulfilment. You see, the Bible knows us humans very well It knows that to a man and a woman we're all the same when it comes to this. We want to be fulfilled. We want to be satisfied, to want for nothing more. And uh, water's just the start of it, isn't it? The the need for water to sort of replenish our body systems, that's just the beginning. We long for so much else, for shelter, for safety, for comfort, for recognition. The list goes on. Things that we put in the need box, things that we say we need these things to be satisfied And so we live in a world that longs for fulfilment. But in a world that's a bit like Australia, really, it's it's in a satisfaction drought. Uh, The dam levels where we draw from to find satisfaction always seem to be critical. We never seem to reach that point where we say, I'm completely satisfied. It's like water itself, isn't it? We, We drink deeply of it, but then very soon we're back at the tap wanting more. And the Bible knows this, Jesus knows this. And in the end, the Bible says that our pursuit for satisfaction, this longing for fulfilment, can become our reason for living. If I could just get, almost becomes our catch cry. To quote George Bernard Shaw, he said, As long as I have want, I have reason for living. No matter how many good things I fill my life with, this is my experience, I'm not filled, there's always room for more. 
I'm like, a, you know, the kid who sort of eats dinner and then when it comes time for dessert, he sort of said he was full and all of a sudden he's got room for more. When it comes to dessert, it's a separate compartment in the stomach. That's how it worked for me. It still works that way. And uh, I think we're like that. We sort of, we get to a point where we think, if I could just get that, I'd be satisfied. And we get it and we think, no, actually I've got room for a bit more. Well, if ever there was something that could quench that thirst, that could sort of short-circuit this sort of falling short of satisfaction, then that would be pretty important. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is offering in John 4. Let's have a look. Page 1066 of the Bibles in the pews, 1066. And we've been looking in these early chapters of John as uh, different people come close to Jesus as they meet him and we'll see a woman uh, in John 4 who comes close and meets Jesus and her life is changed forever. Now this woman that we meet in John 4 is just like us. She is searching for satisfaction. And like many of us, the place that she is searching more than anywhere else is in relationships. I mean this for her is the absolute top of the triangle of needs. This is, this is it. If she has a, a good, stable relationship, then her life will be complete. I think most of us are like that, aren't we? We long for relationship, especially that that one secure personal relationship where the person who knows us, warts and all, smelly feet and all, someone whom we're, we're completely open with, who knows us. Well, that's what this woman has searched hard for, just such a thing. But each time it looks like it's coming close, each time the dream is almost there, reality comes crashing in. Five times we're told in verse 18 she's attempted marriage and she's zero for five, five times. And now she's trying again with another man but this time not marrying him, maybe a little scared to sort of go, go to that sort of level of commitment given past history. She places such huge expectations on each of these relationships. Everything hangs on them. A weight that relationships like that can't possibly bear. And to be honest, we don't just do that with relationships, do we? we the Bible says that the things that we long for, the, these places that we go to for satisfaction and fulfilment, are things that can't possibly bear up under the weight of all our hopes and expectations. We set them up to disappoint us. We'll take, for example, again the city of Sydney. I'm not sure what image comes into your mind when you think of Sydney, but the, the sort of the tourist image, which to be honest is pretty accurate, is uh, it's a beautiful fun-filled, laid-back, sun-soaked. I'm getting homesick again. (laughs) It's a pleasure zone, surrounded by beaches, this beautiful harbour, wonderful food, fresh fruit. I've got to stop. And uh, I've got to be honest, while I've been here, I've been asked again, why did you leave? What were you thinking? It's like, you know, you've left heaven. And... uh, to be honest, there's a lot of accuracy in, in those descriptions, apart from the heaven bit, uh, of uh, Sydney. But even in a place like Sydney, which seems on the surface so wonderful, so laid back, everyone's relaxed, everyone's comfortable. Well, there was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald uh, a few months ago by a British researcher who uh, has written a book recently called Affluenza. And he, he sort of travelled around seven developed countries in the world looking at where they find satisfaction. And he, he said of Sydney, he said, of all the cities he looked at, Sydney is the saddest city in the world. His description of it was vacuous, shallow and a city with no soul. That's my home. 
He says, Sydney siders live for property prices and perfect bodies. That's why I left. <laughs> let, me, let me quote him. He says, when they're not working the longest hours in the developed world, they pursue perfect bodies through joyless fitness regimes or obsess about their property prices. They're always looking around anxiously in the hope that others aren't doing better. Sydney siders are like the tin man from the Wizard of Oz. They have no idea of the point of their lives other than to get rich. You see, the thing is, in the end, the things that we seek satisfaction in, the things that we think, this is what's going to make all the difference, we fall well short of being satisfied when we get them. We're drawing on wells that just don't have the capacity to fill us. But if there was something that could, that would be worth knowing. Well, in John 4, we're given three reasons why Jesus alone can bear up under the weight of all our expectations, why he alone can quench our thirst. Let's have a look. The first reason John 4 gives why Jesus alone can do that is that he alone meets us unconditionally where we're at. If you look at at this story, what's led up to it is that uh, Jesus has uh, more and more become more and more popular. He's gaining more and more disciples. People are following him. And he's reached the point where he, he thinks he needs to get away from that and he heads back to Galilee. But in order to head back to Galilee, he has to pass through Samaria. And as he does so, he comes across a woman at a well in the middle of the day. And really, to meet this woman, Jesus has overcome three huge cultural barriers. Have a look at verse 9. You see the first one. For starters, she's a woman. And in this culture, a man, especially a Jewish man, would not speak to a woman he did not know in the middle of the day like this. He just wouldn't do it. And so you can see in verse 9 her shock that he would speak to her. You see it again in verse 27 when the disciples return on the scene and they're shocked that he's talking to this woman. So first of all, Jesus has crashed straight through that cultural barrier. The second one is that she's not just a woman, she's a Samaritan woman. And for the Jews, these were the absolute last people you wanted to spend time with. People who historically had sort of broken themselves off from God's people, from Israel, broken themselves off from the place where God's people met with their God, Jerusalem, and as time and time had gone on, moved further and further away from God. They were the outcasts, if you like. And so many Jewish people, when they were travelling this way, would do a massive detour all the way around Samaria just to avoid contact with them. Not so Jesus. And finally, she is a sinner. Most of the women who came to this world would do so at the first thing in the morning, in the cool of the day, or or maybe last thing in the afternoon, but not at high noon. We're told it's the sixth hour, it's basically noon. Hottest part of the day, here she is, alone. And as the story goes on, as we, we read of her history of uh, broken relationships, you can see why she wants to be alone, the shame that she carries. But Jesus breaks through all of these barriers because this is his way with us. He is deeply concerned, deeply interested in the individual person, no matter who or what or where they are. And it's interesting to note that the two people that we've met so far as we've looked at John's Gospel uh, Nicodemus last week and, and the Samaritan woman now, they form a, an amazing contrast, don't they? They're both very ordinary stories about ordinary things. Last week it was about birth, this week it's about water. One was in the dead of night, one's at high noon. One was about a man, one about a woman. One in the city, one in a country backwater. 
Nicodemus is a very important man and this woman, she's disreputable, an outcast, a nobody. And so you get the impression that racial background, religious identity, moral track record are neither here nor there to Jesus. Reputation, standing count for nothing. That's his way with us. He meets us where we're at, in the midst of ordinary life, the greatest to the least. They're very different people, Nicodemus and this woman, aren't they? Which one do you feel more like? Which one do you sort of feel yourself drawn to? Are you a bit like Nicodemus, you know, feeling pretty satisfied with what you've done with life, like you're in control, perhaps even feeling like you'd do fine in life living without God? Or even if he was involved, at worst you'd be equal partners. Or maybe you feel a bit like this Samaritan woman, acutely aware of falling short of your own expectations, let alone the expectations others might have of you. Perhaps even a bit embarrassed to come close to God. I mean, what would he think? Or maybe assuming that God would hardly be interested in the first place. Well, wherever you are or wherever in between these two characters, remember two things. All throughout the Gospel accounts, the very charge the opponents of Jesus lay at his feet is that it is people like this that he comes close to. The least, the grubby, the questionable, the failure, along with the winners, the admired, the clean, the great, all sorts. And also remember that all of them Nicodemus, this woman, all of them, the ones who come close to Jesus, have one thing in common. They desperately need him. Desperately. Let's keep going and see why. Which brings us to the second part that this passage brings out for why Jesus alone can fulfil our desire for satisfaction. He alone knows what we need and he promises it. In verse 7, the conversation between the woman and Jesus begins in a very simple way, very basic level. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? But very quickly, Jesus, as is his habit, cuts to the chase. What starts as a simple discussion about a glass of water very quickly moves into an exploration of the human condition. As the conversation continues, the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You see, if there's any shock in this conversation, it's not that Jesus is talking to this woman or a Samaritan woman. The shock is that she hasn't asked him for a drink. Jesus offers her in verse 10 living water and when she hears that she's stuck on the surface, she's sticking to task, she's here for water, H2O and if he knows about some sort of running water, living water like a spring or something that would be better than this well then she'd like to know about it. I mean maybe that's a way of sort of short circuiting having to be with everybody else. Show me this water she says. But then she points out the obvious problem in verse 11, where, where would you get this water? I mean you don't even have a bucket. But Jesus pushes even further, getting deeper and deeper. Not only do I not need a bucket, but the water I give you is going to take away your thirst forever. Drink this water and it will be like a well has been placed in your very soul that will bubble all the way up to eternal life. That's what Jesus is promising. 
And you get the impression that the conversation is taking place on two levels. The woman is on the surface, H2O, that's what she's thinking about. Jesus, much deeper, is using this water, this idea of a drink of water, as a symbol of the gift he is offering to quench even the most parched spiritual thirst. What's he getting at? Well, again, a bit like last week, if we were to understand clearly what Jesus is saying and grasp how important it is, we need to be clear about some of the things that he has told her. First of all, he said, if you knew the gift of God, what's this gift of God that he talks about? Well, again and again in the Old Testament, this phrase, the gift of God, refers to God's gracious promise that he will bring life to this world, eternal life. That's his promise, that's his gift. If she knew that offer, if she knew about that promise, then she'd ask him for living water which at one level is, as she said, like a spring, a a sort of a natural source of water. But Jesus is also pointing to something much deeper, one of the big promises that God makes all the way through the Old Testament. And so once again, like last week, we need to go back there to see what Jesus is offering. If you do go back to the Old Testament and, and you sort of explore what it says about this whole idea of our thirst and our desire for satisfaction, you'll see how again and again in the prophets, God grieves that his people reject him. He grieves at having done that, that they search for satisfaction in places other than him. Hear what the prophet Jeremiah says in chapter 2. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God looks at his people and he looks at his world and he sees the futility of our pursuit for fulfilment. He says you're searching in the wrong places. It's like you've got a sieve out and you're trying to collect water in it. It's not going to work. But God says, as good as the things are that we seek, at best they're placebos. They will not satisfy. And our world is great at holding up those, aren't, isn't it? Short-term thirst quenches. But Jesus says to this woman and he says to us, Everyone who drinks water like that will be thirsty again. Jesus says, stop drawing water from broken cisterns and ask God for living water, which he has promised to give you. And in Ezekiel 47, 47, he makes that promise. It looks forward to a day when God would pour out this living water on the land and absolutely everything that it touched, this water, would be brought to life. That's God's promise. He would pour out the very life of God, his spirit on this world. Jesus says, whoever drinks water like that will never thirst. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, it becomes clear when Jesus talks about satisfaction, he's not talking about material things. He's talking about something far more permanent and satisfying. The very life of God, his spirit, poured into the life of those who come to him by faith. And in giving us this gift, we are told that it will be like a spring that will well up all the way to eternal life. In Corinthians 12, we're told it is only by this gift of living water, God's spirit, that we'll be able to see Jesus clearly, see him as Lord. Only by God's spirit can I say that. That I can stand rightly before him and that's where satisfaction is found. In Romans 8 we're told it is only by God's spirit that I can call God Father and be known as his child. 
And then at last I have a relationship that can hold up under the weight of my expectation. And so Jesus says to this woman and he says to us today, it is only in coming to him, trusting him, that we can be brought into that relationship, that we can have our thirst quenched. God's gift to this woman who has known only broken relationships, restored relationships. The third aspect that this passage brings out as to why Jesus alone can fulfil is that he alone knows what the problem is. You see, when we hear this promise of, of living water and when this woman heard this promise of living water, it sounds good but it's almost too good to be true, isn't it? That there would be something like that that would fully quench our thirst. You know, we're so hardened uh, and so not used to the taste of water like this that we wouldn't know where to start. But Jesus knows where and so in verse 15 when it comes to this woman he identifies the problem. He says, go call your husband. Now at first look in the conversation that follows she seems like a wild woman, doesn't she? Five husbands and now a sixth man that's not even her husband. Now we're not told the detail of what's led to all of these relationships breaking down. It could be all sorts of things. But you need to remember that in this culture, divorce is something that only men could do. It doesn't absolve her of uh, all blame, but it does say that along the way there has been a whole lot of rejection, a whole lot. Five times a man has said to her, I don't want you. And this man, this stranger has come up to her, put your feet in her shoes for a moment. Imagine what this is like. Here is a complete stranger who has put on the table your most private and personal issues, brought them out into the open. I mean, this is what she was trying to avoid. This is why she's here in the middle of the day. But again, this is Jesus' way with us. He brings it out into the light. Think about the two people we've seen so far, Nicodemus and now this woman. Both times Jesus goes right to the heart of the problem. With Nicodemus it was all about self-reliance. For this woman it was about searching in the wrong places. And so Jesus shakes her seared spirit. It's like he's sort of touching a scab and sort of pulling it open again. And in as few words as possible she tries to avoid this, the direction this conversation is going in and she says, I have no husband. As little truth as possible basically. We love to conceal. We hate it when our failures are exposed Failures that again and again the Bible calls sin. We'd do almost anything to avoid them coming out, wouldn't we? It's like John 3 verse 20 says, We love the darkness. We love it being hidden, being clouded over, not known. When if we were to come close to Jesus, what would he say to us? If our whole lives were laid bare before him as they already are, what would be exposed? I have no husband. She might as well have said, I I have no problem. And my bet is that there are people here thinking that way when it comes to Jesus. This is not about me. But the Bible says that the verdict that would fall on our lives is just as devastating as the one Jesus utters to this Samaritan woman. Well, how do you respond to a verdict that God would bring on our lives? That he knows the problem. That he knows our deepest needs and he knows how to fix it. Well, if you've never dealt with that, let me encourage you to follow the lead of this woman from Samaria. Jesus has seen right through her completely as he does us. How hard would that be? 
I'm sure she was tempted to run, but she doesn't. She stays. And in verse 20, I think she asks the question we all need to ask when it comes to this. Where do I go to fix this? Where do I go to meet this God, to worship this God who offers this gift of satisfaction? Verse 20, she says, you know, usually I go to Mount Gerizim. That's what the Samaritans do when they're doing business with God. But you you Jews, you say we need to go to Jerusalem to do that. Where should I go to get this gift? In verse 21, Jesus blows her out of the water with his answer. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The time has come when such distinctions are irrelevant. It's a pointless debate. It's a bit like sort of arguing whether cassette tapes or vinyl LP records are better. Those days have gone. Neither are better. We've moved on. And Jesus is saying that's, that's a debate for the past. Verse 22, he enters into it. He says, you know, if we were to have this debate, there is an answer. There is a right side. When the ten tribes of the northern Israel split and that's where Samaria was formed out of people like that, they cut themselves off from God's purposes, cut themselves off from the very place he met with his people, Jerusalem. And so Jesus says, yes, you're right, the Samaritans are in the wrong place. But the time has come when even Jerusalem and the temple is irrelevant. The time has come, you see it there in verse 23, it has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus says if you want to do business with God, if you want to be able to stand rightly before him and accept this gift that he offers, then the where doesn't matter anymore. What matters is spirit and truth because God is spirit. The worship God requires has nothing to do with a place. And so the question God asks is, are you coming to me in spirit and truth? And remember last week when, we, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he said, when it, when it comes to the spirit being at work in a human heart, it will be obvious when that's happening, when we are worshipping God in spirit. A heart that is, the Spirit is at work in is a heart that trusts Jesus. It's that simple. It's a heart that is bent over in worship to him. That's what worshipping in spirit and truth is. And so the answer for this woman is simple. The ideal location to do business with God is a broken and contrite spirit, a repentant heart, a person who comes to God because he knows he has nowhere else to go to find satisfaction, to find life. In verse 25, the woman has one more go. She says, I I don't know about all that. I know when the Messiah comes, he'll explain it all. He'll make it clear. And we have these wonderful words in verse 26. Jesus responds, I am he. I am he. If you want forgiveness, if you want living water, if you want to be restored to relationship with God, come to me, says Jesus. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you've done, Come to me. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? And you can imagine this woman so used to disappointment would have been having doubts. Well, how about you? Well, again, heed her example. Come to Jesus. For in him at last we have one who by his mighty death and his powerful conquering of death delivers this gift of God, eternal life. No more empty words. 
And if you are someone here this morning who is a Christian who does trust Jesus, let me ask you again, is he really where you go for satisfaction? Is he really where you go for fulfilment? I reckon it's hard. Hard not to go elsewhere, isn't it? Hard not to think that we need other things, that he's just part of the puzzle. Jesus says, come to me. And if you're not a Christian, if you are yet to trust in him, let me encourage you to take the lead from this Samaritan woman. Where do you go for satisfaction? Who do you go to for satisfaction? Come to Jesus again or maybe for the first time. Come to him and live. Let's pray.